it's much more difficult to be a leader in uh, in an area that you have no background in. It doesn't it doesn't matter particularly to do with writing software. Everything's constantly moving, and and one thing I know for sure is that you've just got to evolve and evolve and evolve. Go to that team and say just build more. That that's just not an option. They're interested in saying I want to buy Google now. I want to buy Amazon now, and I want to sell it again now. Hi everyone, it's Vasil Soloshuk from Insert. And this is our FinTech CTO podcast. And we have a very interesting guest today. So before getting started, please click the subscribe button and like this video. Let's go. Hi, everyone. So today uh, we have Chris Wright. Uh, CTO of Wellscan. Actually, let's start. And uh, my very first question uh, will be, Chris, can you please introduce yourself? Uh, tell us a little bit more about your current role, what you do. Sure. So um, thanks for having us on the podcast, first of all. Um, so I'm Chris Wright. I'm the CTO at Wellscanal. And my role doesn't involve writing so much code these days. Uh, but in my early time at Wealth Kernel, I certainly spend a lot of time doing that. Uh, these days, it's all about uh, enabling the wider team to build new features for, for our wealth management infrastructure. So for how long are you in the current CTO role, actually? Uh, so that's relatively recent. So it must be uh, three months or so. Um, uh, I have been head of engineering for some time, um, and our previous CTO has moved on to uh, other pastures. And so I've picked up those reins pretty recently. Nice, nice. So actually on your uh, LinkedIn profile, I have read actually quotes, I'm an experienced software engineer and architect with an ability to understand and communicate with both the technical and the commercial sides of the business. My question here is, so how do you see a CTO role actually? So is it more about the software engineering, more about architecture design, or more about management leadership, or building a bridge between technical and commercial side of the business? Sure. That I mean, it's a good question, and honestly, the uh, the strap line on the LinkedIn profile there is probably not super up to date. The short answer is, and I've, as it is the answer to so many questions, it depends, and I think it depends a lot on where the business is uh, in its life cycle. If you look at a, a startup with three, four, five people, CTO is likely to be hands-on writing code, right? They're going to be heavily involved yes. um, doing everything. Well, you know, everyone does a bit of everything in that scenario, right? Everyone wears many hats and, and uh, does many jobs. As the company starts to grow, really starts to scale up, of course, it becomes less around uh, less about writing code and much more about enabling others to to deliver. Um, the you know the functionality that you need as an organization, so it becomes more about um, recruiting the right people. It becomes about uh, putting in place processes and 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 making the developer experience good for uh, the the broader engineering team. So your previous role uh, was actually, as I understand, head of engineering for something like six years or so. And so uh, yeah, about what, that. Yeah. What what has changed actually? Becoming a CTO, what what has changed? What the difference between these role, roles? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, so it's um, it's a little bit further away from the hands-on day-to-day coding, and it, it involves more um, more interaction with the other parts of the business, and 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 in fact, more interaction with the um, the customers of ours. We're a B two B business, um, so it involves more interaction with the particularly the engineers in, in our uh, in our customers. Nice, that said, nice. you know, that said, honestly, um, I was pretty heavily involved, you know, um, with that stuff. The, bi- the bigger factor, honestly, is the growth that we're seeing at the moment in terms of, you know, the team size, in terms of the demand for project uh, for our product. My role has changed, but also the company is changing continually. We're always looking to evolve and improve. And, and as we grow, we've got to change things. You know, what worked for uh, half a dozen people when I started, doesn't really work for 15 people and what works for 15 people doesn't really work for 40 people or you know uh, or, or 60 um, so it, it's about continually evolving okay so this is an evolution of the role i think so okay yeah. so before being a head and before being a cto which uh, as you also said uh, 
more like a man looks like more like a management and uh, leadership roles uh you also had a significant experience as i understand as a soft engineer software architect and uh, so basically my question is so why did you decide uh, you know and choose to develop yourself uh, into a management role so what actually was like a trigger event for that for that i think there's a few factors uh, at play i mean throughout my career whilst i've been uh, i've certainly been writing a lot of code um and architecting things um i've i've always been very interested in the business problems to be solved um and and using software as a means to to solve those problems uh, rather than in software as a means to an end in itself right what's interesting is i never actually worked for the the big it vertical uh, in any of my previous roles i always worked for the business directly like sitting on the desk with the you know with the business um and so uh, in a lot of respects i view the opportunity to kind of to lead or to manage or whatever is a a way of getting more done basically it kind of it's like a the like the 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 multiplier effect right um if i can solve more business problems by making it possible for a wider team to work on a problem then you know it, it gets more done actually what maybe are the other skill set that uh, CTO may uh, actually should or must have what do you think from the technical perspective and also from the management perspective it's important of course that you've got to understand what's going on you know when necessarily and when necessary with the nuts and bolts of of uh of writing code of building stuff it, it would be i think difficult to be a cto with you know with no uh technical background but at the same time it's about being able to take kind of the the bigger picture view looking from a bit higher up having more context about what what's going on and and um with that context helping the you know the engineers the the devops team you know everyone really to um to make better decisions about the code they're writing or or giving them the information they need to make those decisions okay okay so in what way your technical background helps you uh, to be a good CTO actually i think num number one it's 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 possible but i think it's it's much more difficult to be a leader in uh in an area that you have no background in it doesn't it doesn't matter particularly to do with writing software but it is important to um to empathize with the team that are working with you right if if you don't understand what they're going through or the the battles they're facing in in you know tracing some like really awkward bug in the system that they just like like and and and, and you know we we've all been there right we we've had to sit there and beat our head and like what what's going on i really don't understand it um if if you can't empathize empathize or or kind of um draw on personal experience to understand what that's like it, it makes it harder to um to mentor and to to lead the um the team members there and then the other thing i think with the technical background is depending on the particular um role like you know you, you should be providing leadership or, or direction uh in a technical sense as well as in in kind of the business sense it's not just about saying we want to build this it's about like maybe looking at the horizon scanning what what things are coming up um what what technical possibilities there are are out there and and kind of giving direction there as well definitely need to have a good technical background to understand uh, you know all the issues all the problems and uh, as for the management uh, skill set uh, probably needs also to be like a good uh, management uh, manager that who can actually set tasks clear tasks clear perspective clear goals and also control them so what do and you think yeah and i think that that is clearly that's important i think to a degree it's about um thinking about scaling things up and and, and you know it's, it's a big challenge for any organization i think like scaling up particularly for the number of um of people working in the business and that's where maybe um thinking about process thinking about um policy i suppose is another word for it starts to matter and and it it it's uh it's a scale of gray right you you've got to be careful you can you don't want to end up um in a in an environment where everyone feels they're just totally wrapped up in red tape and 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 too many things getting getting in the way you want enough process to enable and enough um 
documentation to be enabled to, to, to enable teams to work and, and, and individuals to work autonomously where they can, right? You, you don't want to have um, a, a bottleneck around a few senior people in, in, in the company. Let's talk uh, about Wells Kernel actually. And uh, uh, it is stated on the website that uh, Wells Kernel uh, is powering digital investing. Mm -hmm. And uh, Chris, can you please tell us a little bit more about what uh, what are the major APIs that you provide, and what are the major services and or functionality that Wells Kernel provides actually? Yeah, so you can you can break our product up into into a few uh, into a few blocks if you like. Um, so first, let, let, let me explain what it is that overall we're aiming to achieve. Really, yes. We want to facilitate uh, other businesses that want that are offering wealth management services, really, to uh, or potentially kind of brokerage services to to retail customers. Well, it doesn't have to be retail customers; it could be uh, other businesses. Even if we took a, a particular example of that, it might be uh, okay. Vasil um, uh, decides one day I want to I want to invest some money for my future. I want to make some you know uh, some investment and. And so you could go to one of our customers and say, please onboard me into the system. I want to invest $1,000. And I want to have that invested in a, let's say, very aggressive way or in a very conservative way or, or what have you. That means we need to provide a, a few services for, for, our, um, for the businesses that we sell to. First of all, we need to enable the onboarding of Vasil into our, into our system. Um, and so that means telling us information around you know, your name, your address, and, and, and all those sort of things. And then we have to uh, provide functionality to make sure you are who you say you are, because the arena we operate in is a very heavily uh, regulated area. You can't just decide in the pub one night, you know what, I'm going to go out and make a robo-advisor and, and, and start writing some code and just start taking people's money. You, you, know, that you end up in, in a lot of trouble pretty quickly if you do that. What we aim to do is if, is if you have that idea and say, I want to write a robo-advisor, we want to make that really easy for you because we can provide all the functionality around the onboarding the person, the, 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 the KYC, and then the, um, the taking, you know, the, the making the channels to make the money appear in our system, tracking what the retail customer owns, uh, and making it possible to invest that in various products from you know, mutual funds, ETFs, um, equities, and with time, that 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 uh, range will expand as well. Broadly, it's about onboarding customers. One block. It's around uh, facilitating the kind of the the flow of uh, cash in or out of the system, and it's about investing in one way or another in uh, in various assets that we support in our on our platform. The bit that's kind of hidden behind the scenes. It's sort of slightly iceberg-like in a way, in that we have the API, which is the surface, but that hides quite a lot of uh, complexity that goes on behind the scenes. There's uh, a lot of uh, regulatory obligation and, 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 um, and checks that we have to, to undertake. And we also have to do a lot of reporting downstream. We have to provide the pipes towards the markets that enable um, the, the trading or the, you know, the brokerage to take place. Yes, certainly. That's that's really interesting. So, and uh, Chris, let's let's maybe set a little bit uh, the perspective regarding the volume of uh, that is handled actually by by your platform. So, in terms of how many transactions, uh, how many trades, and uh, also uh, sure. assets under management. So, what can you tell us here? Sure. So. What's uh, quite interesting around the what, what Wealth Kernel does is we're about trying to um, to make these kind of services available to a, a broader audience. So historically, wealth management was a um, it was something that you accessed maybe by visiting a person like in, in real life and or maybe going to their office or me meeting them for a coffee somewhere, and they would talk you through all the possibilities and you'd fill some paper in and and, and it would all work like that. Um, the issue with that is that it's it's a very expensive service to provide. And so that was really only accessible to people with really a lot of money to get invested, right? You had, you know, you needed whatever, uh, let's say a hundred thousand pounds or, or even more in, in the, the more premium offerings to, to be able to 
be allowed in the door as a retail customer. Um, what we're what we can do by um, by making a lot of things available electronically or, or online or however, is we can make our product available to people who want to invest, you know, as little as let's say ten pounds or hundred pounds. We have like in in relative terms um, a lot more retail customers in the platform for a, a smaller um, level of assets under management compared to the traditional wealth offerings, which would be all about small numbers of customers with with significant um, amounts of money to invest. Uh, in terms of, let me give you some numbers of kind of throughput. Mm -hmm. um, we see days where we've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of, uh, of trades going through the platform. Um, and so, um, and, and, and that's kind of an ever increasing thing. So it's, um, it's something really on our minds at the moment is really, you know, in increasing and increasing the uh, capacity of the system to scale um, and to, to deal with those, uh, that, that, that throughput. Um, another kind of interesting thing, like, and again, this is a contrast between the, the slightly more modern world and the older world is historically the wealth management world was very much about um, once a day kind of batch processes. When you're talking about scale, that's an interesting thing because then, you know, not, and not only have you got kind of quite a lot going through, but it's all going through kind of at once. Actually, in terms of customer experience, what uh, something that we're really excited by is the possibility to start making things happen a little bit more continually. So a recent uh, integration we've made is with um, a, another um, relatively young company called uh, ClearBank based in the UK, who they're offering, they're, they're offering banking uh, as, as a service for us, but we're integrating, we, you know, we hit their APIs, we get webhooks from them and so forth. And that means that if someone transfers some money into our system, we can see straight away that the money's arrived, we can match it to their portfolio in our system. And, and, it, and it means that Whereas historically, you would have been waiting till the end of the day to see a file downloaded from, you know, over SFTP or whatever. Here are all the deposits made over the day and you do your thing overnight to process them. And the customer wouldn't have seen that money hit our system until the day after or, you know, worst case, if it was a weekend, they'd have to wait till Monday, right? Um, in the modern world, they make the transfer, they can see it hit the bank and we can see it straight away and they can see you know, virtually as soon as I've hit the button, they can see the, the uh, money in our system. Um, and and that's, that's an interesting thing on the scaling front as well. So, because it actually, arguably, it makes it better for us because it spreads the load out kind of more evenly over the day. As I understand, your clients are near banks, which is pretty clear, and also embedded finance clients. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, embedded finance, which is like a uh, growing area, because they, I mean, many in, in many different areas, uh, platforms are actually are integrating some fintech solutions, and uh, we'll be interested to learn more about what kind of embedded finance clients do you have? Who are they? I mean, maybe what types of clients you have in this area? Sure. So I think embedded finance is, like you say, it's kind of the 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 term of the moment in a way. It's quite a popular term. It yeah. It's becoming a bit cl clearer with time what it does or doesn't mean. But broadly speaking, I think it means using the kind of APIs that we offer or the kind of APIs that um, the you know modern banks might offer um, to join together pieces that you might not necessarily have thought of, I guess. Um, and so people can use our API because people can use our APIs to buy an, uh, an equity or a fund or whatever. It's in that arena, at least it's, it's kind of, it's almost like a, a question of um, where, where does your imagination limit you really? Um, people can do things like, let's say they've uh, one of, you know, a, a tenant of ours might be like a, a neobank kind of setup or any, you know, e-banking kind of setup where you've got a, a card that you can use and, and, that's the, the app is kind of fairly tightly coupled with or you know tightly um aware of what's going on with that card and so you you see kind of stories about people doing things like buying um a donut with an etf they have in their portfolio that's the sort of thing that people could make happen using our apis because they could make the call to our api to say we'll sell some of this etf and then they can see the proceeds from that and then route it straight through to say make the payment on the card Actually, 
I've read an article, <laughs> uh, which is, uh, the name is, uh, what are microservices uh, and should you use in them? So it was by Charles Orton Jones, published April 20th, 2022. And uh, it was a quote by you, uh, financial software provider Wells Kernel is a strong advocate of microservices. And Chris Wright at CTO explains, in software terms, the decomposition of large systems into microservices means that they can be worked on and deployed independently. As the old saying goes, the easiest way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time. And this allows for increased team autonomy, faster release cycles, and improved isolation of faults. We also use microservices pretty heavily. So mm -hmm. this is a nice topic to discuss, I think. And so what's, I mean, uh, Taking that into account, so what is the current state of the art uh, with the software architecture for Wells kernel platform, actually? Where, as you might guess, um, using microservices, um, our cloud provider is primarily uh, Azure, and we're running um, a number of AKS clusters uh, in Azure. Uh, so that's the, that's the Microsoft managed Kubernetes offering. We're in a pretty good place now, I'd say, in DevOps terms, in that if we want to deploy a new environment um, because someone wants to test some particular thing and they need an isolated environment to do that, it's it would be a lie to say it's literally a press of a button, but it's getting pretty close now to uh, to be able to deploy the Kubernetes cluster, the databases that are necessary behind the scenes, deploy all the uh, you know the pods out onto the cluster and and and, and so on is, is is getting pretty close now um the um the individual services running in the cluster are um their c sharp um aspnet.core um microservices um talking to each other over um rest apis and uh, talking through a service mesh um you know, to, to kind of capture some of the benefits you can get out of um, abstracting some of those those problems away from all the individual microservices. You can you can kind of have that cross-cutting um, functionality once rather than having to kind of build everything every time. Um, what are the kind of key points we've we got? Um, an interesting point about how we work is uh, that we use uh, event sourcing to quite a degree. Um, which is, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's an approach to, to storing data that, that focuses rather on, uh, than, than focusing on state focuses on events happening in, um, in the system and, and statements of fact about what have happened, what, what, what's happened in, in the real world, I guess. And, um, and that leads lean, uh, lends itself very nicely to, um, to event driven systems as well. Okay. So, you know, when talking about the, uh, software architecture, I like to realize the uh, Conway's law. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this law actually states that organizations which uh, design systems are constrained to produce designs which are copies of the communication structures of these organizations. Mm -hmm. So basically speaking, it states like, you know, the soft architecture reflects the team structure you have and team structure reflects the soft architecture you have. So, yep. so will you agree with that or not? How, how, uh, is it, so do you have the similar situation in your team or not? So what can you tell us about this? I, no, I certainly think there's some truth in it. Um, for sure. Um, the way we're structured at the moment is we have, um, three independent, uh, engineering teams. Um, but as I kind of previously mentioned, like, you know, we're, we're undergoing kind of quite a lot of growth at the moment. And so I think everything's constantly moving. And, and one thing I know for sure is that you've just got to evolve and evolve and evolve because, um, being kind of holding on too tightly to whatever particular structure you've got at the moment is, is probably going to be a mistake unless nothing else is changing. I suppose it's worth it working well and nothing else is changing. Fair enough. But in practice, for us at the moment, at least, things are changing. We're growing. We're building new uh, 
new products and and um, and and onboarding you know more and more customers. Whilst Conway's law, I'm 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 certain there's some truth in that, and and I think it kind of it microservices kind of fits in with that idea as well. It kind of like you, the whole idea is then you can have um, a team can own some number of microservices and they can work independently from another team. And ideally, we don't want to end up in a in a world where no one in the in in the uh, engineering organization can work without impacting other people and that's one of the things that microservices gives you and so I, I suppose in a way that is a reflection of what we want as a as an organization right we we want to be able to have teams working independently um and microservices gives us that so maybe, maybe that's uh, a, like a corroboration of, of conway's law okay okay and so how big is the current team and what are the more specific roles you have in that in that teams so uh, as a whole, Wealth Kernel is now around 60 people. Um, around a third of that is on the engineering side. Um, and the majority of that is, um, is engineers building, building stuff, uh, breaking down real world problems into things small enough to be built, and then building them, testing them, deploying them. Um, we're big advocates of uh, automation, where it you know where it can be done. I would rather invest more time in uh, building up automated testing than having humans there testing things. Right? Um, it because then that tests valuable for some time, and it doesn't need a person to go through the motions every single time. Other than that, we have uh, some. Um, project management and, and kind of uh, BA sort of project office, if you want to call it that, um, uh, people who are helping coordinate things. Um, we work in a relatively complex domain, I would think, and, and with a lot of constraints from the regulatory side uh, and the legal side. So there is a lot to be done in terms of interpreting, you know, understanding what the rules are, um, what it means in terms of what can be built and so on. So that they really help out there. Um, and then we've got a, um, a DevOps team and a, um, a relatively young uh, IT in the sense of supporting IT for the business team as well. Um, again, you know, as, as we've grown, we've found like now, now we really need someone to own that independently from the people who are building the product. We need to we need to support the wider team. You know, the compliance uh, team, the legal team, the operations team, with the the tools that they, they need to do their day-to-day -day jobs. So based on your experience, so can you add something uh, more about the actual software development process? So how to organize, so what are the best practices that actually you implement? In a way, it, that, that the, um, the piece that I mentioned before with, with microservices, decomposition, I think is really fundamental. Um, when you're faced with some business problem to be solved that is, like enormous daunting you know where, where do you start with it the um a really important part and in my mind i think the most important part is how do you take that problem and break it down into smaller problems that are tractable you know small enough that we can solve them uh small enough that something can be built really really important because otherwise you're you're just going to be floundering that's that's a you know a really fundamental piece and and that has to start with really understanding what is what is it that we're we're saying is is done in in the context of the problem we're looking to solve. Let's let's shave that down. Let's make it as small as we can. Let's we're big advocates of building an MVP and evolving it uh, with time, because by building something you learn something, and and that then will inform your your kind of your 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 next steps. Above and beyond that, by building that that MVP and getting that used all the way to production, ideally, it's 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 kind of a um, it, it's a great feeling as a human to say, look, we've we've had something that's an aim here, and we've delivered it, and and that just helps everyone, I think, as a team, as an, and as ind individuals, to kind of have that feeling that 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 things are being delivered, that that uh, we've ticked something off. It's a really nice feeling just to kind of 
tick problems off or drag them across on the Kanban board or whatever it is you want to be doing, right? Yeah, certainly. So I really uh, like the, you know, like it, iterations, like small iterations, because you can uh, iterate fast and uh, deliver faster and actually get the feedback from the users, from the market, from the clients. Also, so talking about the microservices, um, so again, uh, from the same article, so Chris reveals that uh, Wells Kernel pro production platform consists of uh, uh, 51 microservices, but adds that this number grows every time we incorporate new functionality. And we expect to have 70, by 70 microservices by the end of the year. So does it mean that with adding more microservices, you need to scale your current software engineering team? It's, it's a good question. I mean, we are scaling for sure. And, and I think inevitably, you know, as you're adding more and more functionality, you're probably going to need to scale your engineering team. I suppose you can imagine a world where you, you know, you build something and it's, it's just working and doesn't need that much interaction going forward. But typically, there will be some cost associated with each increment, incremental uh, piece of functionality for the long term. But the, the short answer is yes, we're scaling our team. We're looking to, we're looking to hire, you know, we are hiring. So, so and, what's the strategy um, behind that? Like the strategy the behind team? the hiring or? Yeah, behind scaling the team. So um, you need to add more functionality, more microservices, but maybe, I mean, do you really need to extend the uh, your your current team? So maybe you don't need to 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 scale it, or maybe you have some strategy here. So if you can explain in more details. Sure. So the the current team, like, they're super busy. We've got no shortage of things we want to do. Like, the, we've got got a lot of a lot of ambition. And um, so one thing I know we can't do is just you know go to that team and say just build more. That that's just not an option for us. Um, okay. and, I, and I can't many, I can't imagine many engineering teams are sat around like not doing much. Um, so we, um, we're the starting point has to be, you know, we need to, we need to operate in a way that allows us to have more hands writing code and, 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 uh, and working together. Um, as I mentioned previously, kind of one, one of the, uh, the benefits of the microservice world is, is it makes or you know, if, if you're doing well, it should be making the the boundaries between different bits of um, domain functionality very, very clear. And when you've got those clear boundaries, that means that people can work on one part of the system, safe in the knowledge they're not going to be adversely impacting some piece that's working well, as far as we're concerned. Right? There are a few approaches that you know that we can take. Like, let's say that we you know we, we've got three teams now, and we we think we want to have four teams soon. Um, one way you could do it, I'm not saying this is a good idea, in fact, I think it's a bad idea, would be to say, okay, now let's just re recruit this new team off to the side, we, we can say, here's your problem, go away and fix it. The problem then is that, that how do they um, learn about the kind of the, the, the culture of working we have? How do they learn about the ways of working we have? It, it would be very isolating uh, for that new team to come in in that way. So um, the, the other alternatives are to kind of shuffle the teams up a, a little bit bring people in or around. The, the other way is to kind of overload an existing team, like bring more people into the team until it's at such a size, it kind of like, uh, it sort of splits out like, uh, like, um, like cells multiplying, right? So you can say if we've, we've got these little cells uh, working on things, we can kind mm -hmm. of bring more, more responsibility into the scope of a team and, and bring more, um, more resource to that team, more, more people working into that team until the, the point it's like we, we get to the point now this is this is a, a size where actually it really makes sense we can now split these out um and and you know that could be mm -hmm. split according to any any number of um bits of logic but then now you know you've you've broken out your platform now into four teams rather than rather than the three that were there before so does it mean uh like this the speed of scaling your team depends on how how fast you can onboard new team members into the into your team, and how effectively you can you can do this? You know, in in terms of talking about scaling for like the the amount of work that's getting done, then mm -hmm. hiring or 
hiring slash onboarding are clearly uh, like a really a fundamental part in, in mm-hmm. that hi- hiring is clearly essential because you've you want to be hiring the right people you, you know um that that's and, mm-hmm. and and we've always um taken the view that we would rather take a little bit longer and make sure we you know and really hire really uh really good people and and i think we've done a good job of that um mm-hmm. once you've hired someone onboarding is is uh is critical and and to be honest with you i think it it's something that we're working on actually and and in, and, and looking to make better because what worked when we were a relatively small engineering team um, doesn't work, but it doesn't work when, when, you know, as you grow, because um, as a smaller team, everyone's kind of aware of everything that's going on. Communication happens much more easily by, by osmosis. Um, when you start to get a little bit, little bit bigger, number one, you can afford to, invest more in that onboarding process because it's getting used more regularly you know in, in the very early days we might hire yes. someone and then not hire another person for another six months um by which time any like onboarding documentation you've built is no longer relevant um, yeah correct. W- w- when you've got more of a pipeline going then clearly it, it makes much more sense uh to to inv- invest more heavily in, in in that experience so so we've now got you know we've got a ded- dedicated hr team now who are um, doing a lot of work on the recruiting side, but also um, who are looking, and this is not just for the engineering team, but looking at, at improving that and, and, and um, formalizing that onboarding process for the whole of Wells Kernel. Um, obviously, there are some parts of onboarding that are more specific to, um, to the IT side in, in, in particular. Um, and that's another area that, you know, we, we, we've um, taken some really good, nice steps on. Um, and, you know, we, we, for example, an idea of the sort of thing we can do is when someone comes on board, um, we can uh, ask them to integrate against our APIs. And that's, that's great in a couple of ways. Number one, it gives them an idea of what, what the product is out there and, and our API is our product in a sense. So great, go, have a, go and have a look at it. Look at the documentation. and so. Number one, they can learn about the um, the product that we are selling, and number two, they can provide feedback on that product and make it better. Um, so it's it's mm-hmm. uh, that's something we're really happy with as a as one one of the steps of our onboarding. Back to the microservices topic, kind of several scenarios how how systems are uh, are, are evolving. The one is you develop a monolith uh, system from scratch. And then at some point of time, you're starting to decompose to microservices. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but the other way can be, you know, develop the whole software architecture uh, using microservices uh, approach in the first place. What is your strategy? What do you prefer to do? And uh, also in terms of return on investment for these strategies? One thing to be very aware of with microservices is that there is some, uh, in a sense, like fixed cost kind of overhead with that, that to get to that world where you're deploying um, all these individual microservices out with your, you know, your CICD pipeline and, and you're kind of managing those many, many processes that are out there and running, that costs something. and And that's what you're alluding to i guess is like when you're starting from from day one that's mm-hmm. that's quite a big cost and so there's there's a couple of ways you can go about it one way is to go like like out and out monolith just like i'm just i'm just writing a, a one big process here database behind the scenes and it, and it does its thing and that takes away a lot of that fixed cost of course i think what's interesting is a, a, a sort of a, a middle ground which is to say we're, we're just going to deploy a single process, because that takes away a lot of the complexity um, early in, in the early days in terms of the deployment, the management uh, of all the uh, the individual services. But maybe write that monolith in a in a very structured way, where you're still trying to maintain boundaries between the different um, domain pieces of your of your product, which means that. When you're getting towards a scale where you're think, saying, actually, there could be some real value for us in, in breaking out into, in, into microservices, hopefully 
you've not ended up with everything stuck together in a big uh, ball of mud. And it's relatively easy to then actually pull out the individual pieces. Mm -hmm. As ever, the whole, the whole thing, um, it depends. Like, depending on your particular problem that you're looking to solve, what we you know where you think you're going to be in six months. Maybe Monolith's better. Maybe microservices are better. Um, if you're looking to build something that's super crazy low latency, probably bouncing calls between microservices and whatever, probably not the right fit. Um, all of these problems, you know, you've got to look at what the problems are in front of you. Read about stuff. Read about the pos the possibilities. Read about the pros and the cons of the different approaches, and make a um, make a decision on the back of the uh, of what you've learned. The other point here is also um, uh, what could be the range in your strategy. Uh, some uh, at this point of time, when you need to maybe decompose your system into microservices, um, some companies they choose to do this decomposition work, and let's say like re-architect and re-engineer in their current uh, uh, system, their, uh, the, their current architecture. Mm -hmm. The other companies they choose to you know rebuild everything from scratch, and maybe reusing something, but mostly rebuilding everything. How to choose which strategy is better? So. And what is your experience here? My personal feeling on this is the um, the avenue of saying, I'm going to rebuild everything from scratch, whilst it feels appealing, often ends up in trouble. Because um, number one, it's it's easy to underestimate how much embodied knowledge there is in the old system, right? And if you're, mm -hmm. and, and it often uh, in those scenarios, the people who originally worked on the, you know, the legacy monoliths aren't available anymore. You know, they've moved on to other roles or to other companies or, or, or you know, or who knows. You're, you're going to have a steep learning curve, I think, rediscovering all that embodied knowledge. My view is the, the better approach is to chip away at the edges in a way, like identify some piece within the monolith that I can carve that off. Put it behind, even initially, put it behind an interface within the, within the monolith. Okay, now my next step is I can break that piece out. Chipping away, it comes back to that idea of identifying, decomposing the big problem. So, so in a way, the idea of rebuilding the whole thing, that's not decomposing the problem at all, right? That's saying, okay. we've got a massive problem. We're going to take it over here and rebuild it. By decomposing the problem, which is, okay, we want to get from here, from this monolith, approach to a microservices approach for for whatever reason who knows what the reason might be behind the scenes okay how can i break that problem down let me move a little piece of it out and then and then and then that enables you to kind of be continually delivering learning the problems as you go and as you it's probably it's kind of like doing a jigsaw puzzle right as you take each little piece away well it's like yeah. a jigsaw in reverse it's undoing the jigsaw the more pieces you've taken away Mm -hmm. the easier it gets to break the remaining pieces down because you've got a smaller code base to work on, less to understand, less that you might adversely impact by making that, that deployment uh, and, and so on. Actually, before doing this, I mean, like decomp decomposing the system. So um, what should be done before that? I mean, like maybe some, if you can provide like, you know, some action plan, like maybe top several items, uh, action items that, should be done before starting that decom decomposing your system. Sure, I, I, I guess the beginning point has to be understand what the system's doing. <laughs> like, right, the, 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 this mm -hmm. monolith we've got here. Let's understand what we're doing, and um, and make sure that there are, I would say, sufficient tests in place to to mean that. Well, two things. Those tests can can serve two purposes. One is to mean any changes we're making to the monolith, we feel comfortable that we're able to to test those ide ideally with automated testing we can test that the changes we're making aren't breaking the existing functionality that we've now got to understand secondly mm -hmm. those tests um are very convenient when you come now come to say i want to break off a piece of functionality i can take take that set of tests that we've identified and, and and written if necessary if they weren't already there we can take those tests and use the same tests in the microservice that we've carved off from the monolith. Chris, uh, 
What do you think are the obstacles that can prevent uh, to scale your software, the software platform? I guess one obstacle is like poorly, poorly defined contracts for what pieces of software are doing. Because if, 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 you know, if, if people aren't really confident in saying, I know exactly what, what the contract is for some piece of software, inadvertently break that, that piece of functionality, or you might uh, you might be you know using it in a way that it, it wasn't intended and 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 so that that would one be be one thing I think is really important is be very clear what it is that any piece of software does or doesn't do I think poorly and this kind of goes back to the to the contract thing really but poorly defined boundaries between different parts of your system and and what I mean by that is not that the, the contracts are defined at the boundaries but poorly chosen boundaries might be a better way of putting it that if you've, you've brought something into a bounded context that doesn't really belong there, then it's going to make life difficult when you want to change sent behaviors or use that same piece of functionality in another way. So you, you know, let's say you've defined uh, some piece of functionality around placing an order. And, and as you first built it, only one particular service is, is using that and actually something's leaked into that, that, that the, the handling of the order that means that it only works for buying uh, bananas. And now, okay, we wanted to build some new functionality to buy, to buy pineapples. And I don't know, there's some functionality in placing the order that assumes that you can peel this fruit. Well, you can't do that with pineapples. It only worked with bananas. If the boundary was nicely defined in the first place or chosen in the first place, probably it shouldn't matter if you're peeling a banana, you know, if it's a banana or a pineapple. And if those boundaries are chosen carefully, you can bring in your pineapple functionality and, and reuse that uh, that orders service, let's say, to, to cope with that other fruit. So let's talk a bit about the future. So uh, so what what kind of scenario do you see for the Wells kernel team and uh, the platform? Um, we we've got um like I said we've got a, a big long list of things we're really we're really interested mm -hmm. in. Um, one big area for us uh, would be expansion um, into Europe. At the moment, we're we're more UK centric, um, and you know we're we're regulated in the UK since Brexit. That means uh, in order to expand into Europe, we now need to be um, authorized in in Europe as well, and that's something we're um, you know investing heavily in. We're 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 moving towards Europe pretty rapidly. Um, the other um, main pieces that we're really excited in, in, in the reasonably near term, are around um, intraday equity trading. So, as I mentioned before, wealth management is historically a, um, a world of, of once a day happenings. People are doing things by batch, and um, and it's it's about people investing their money for the long term. And honestly, for a lot of people, that's probably the right thing. But um, there's been an explosion in, in recent times of the, the sort of the free trading apps, right? That, uh, you know, the sort of the Robin Hoods, the, you know, the free trades of this world, the Revoluts, they um, mm -hmm. allow people to come along and rather than saying, you know, I'm interested in buying this mutual fund and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to hold that for the long term. They're interested in saying, I want to buy Google now. I want to buy Amazon now and I want to sell it again now. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's a really um, significant piece of infrastructure we're we're building right now. Um, the ability to uh, to to place intraday trades for U.S. equities initially, and then we'll be expanding further beyond that into um, into other markets. Um, we're interested in uh, expanding the um, our offering in terms of uh, the wrappers that we offer. So um, I don't know how well this translates to, to the US, but we support at the moment um, various uh, tax beneficial wrappers around our, our, our offering. So in the UK, okay. um, if you if you uh, you want to buy some shares or whatever, you can buy them inside what's called an ISA. It's, uh, it's a government sort of supported wrapper. That means you don't pay tax on the income generated uh, inside that wrapper. Um, and, and it's a really fundamental part of 
uh, of wealth management because of course if you don't have to pay tax you know you wouldn't want to um and we're expanding out into the pension space whilst at the moment we're kind of we've got more of a focus on the uk side we'll be looking to support rappers you know elsewhere as well um on the european side too so that's an, that's another big area of interest for us my final question uh what do you think will be like two three major challenges for the whole fintech industry let's say during the next couple of years maybe up to five years so what about these two three major challenges maybe from the technical perspective maybe from the business perspective ecosystem that's a that's a that's a big question that's a good question i mean one challenge is um always to you know to look after the customers i think that um there's 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 a constant drive to to kind of make things cheaper and to kind of bring on customers by making things cheaper and, and we've seen that in the us for example with the you know the payment for order flow i think pe people have made available equity trading but they've and they've made it free but in a sense someone's paying somewhere right and i think that's mm -hmm. some that's that's an area that, that the regulators are going to be looking into more closely for sure um okay. from from a technical perspective i mean scale is always a is always a you know a, a challenge just like scale mm -hmm. for number you know the, the the flow of traffic and, and so on a common theme and this is going to be a challenge is kind of flexibility of of of, of um people moving their business from one place to another and historically that's been something that's very difficult to be you know is difficult for customers to achieve so think you know thing things are changing i think but historically as a consumer it's been really difficult to come along and say you know what i want to move my pension from here to here or i want to um i want i want you know i want to take all my data from here and put it over here that that i think is going to be a, a challenge kind of sharing the data around in a way chris thank you very much uh... So it was uh, great talking with you. So this was my final question. So thank you for sharing all your thoughts, your expertise, and uh, thank you. You're I welcome. You're done. Uh, it, it was fun. Nice to speak to you.